This show is sponsored by Metastock, which is, in our opinion, the most comprehensive market analysis tool available and allows you to analyze any market, comparing trends, identifying hidden correlations, and allowing you to find asymmetric opportunities like we've been discussing with our current guest. It's a real-time news source with split-second economic releases and analysis, putting you as close as you can get to emerging trends as they happen. Best of all, Metastock is easy to use. It's simple to construct a workspace, add charts and assets, and news feeds, all with a few clicks. It's the equivalent of Reuters Icon or the Bloomberg Terminal, but for a fraction of the price. Even better, we have a special deal our listeners can get that is not available elsewhere, where you can get three months for the price of one, and then a great discount if you want to continue to become a subscriber. Simply click the link in the show notes to find out more, or go to www.metastock.com forward slash Vespa EK three for one. And that's all spelled out except for the numbers three and one. Hello one and all, my name's Lucas Ginello and I'm honoured to welcome you to episode three of the Vespa Capital podcast, where we find the smartest investors, entrepreneurs, fund managers, traders, you name it, and interrogate them on what made them successful so you can shortcut becoming better at managing money and growing your wealth. We are finishing off our discussion today with Chris McIntosh of Capitalist Exploits fame, among others. Chris is a macro investor, but what we find interesting about him is he's done it all, from working at the biggest banks, to running businesses, to being into property, to taking up angel investing and then VC investing. He's really an all-round investor in the true sense of the word. Chris specializes in profiting from opportunities he sees that have a ton of upside potential with minimum risk, something he has done consistently and across asset classes and markets. And that's why he's here today to share some insight. Parts one and two of this conversation can be found on the Vespa Capital blog, YouTube, iTunes, Google Play. Just search for it if you haven't heard the episodes as they put part three into perspective. In this episode, we speak about Warren Buffett. Of course, it wouldn't be an invested podcast without mentioning Buffett now, would it? Capital allocation, which assets Chris thinks are attractive for these times that we live in now? How the familiar benchmarks that everyone uses in investing are risky and should be used with caution? Chris's recommendations on books and study material for people who want to develop their investing, the birth of his blog, Capitalist Exploits, and many more things that will give you insight into this clever guy. So good people, I present Chris McIntosh, part three. To kick us off, I asked Chris to tell us what he'd do if he had $20 million to invest now. But before that, perhaps talk a little about the returns investors expect in the current environment. Enjoy. Here's the thing. Let's say you and I are managing money. The S&P is the benchmark, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you and I don't beat the S&P, we're going to get redemptions. That's pretty much how the market works, right? The limit, our limited partners are going to go, oh, you didn't beat the benchmark. And they might give us a year, and then after year two, they go, you know what? I should have just put my money in the S&P because you didn't get the benchmark. It goes all the way down to the retail level when you're, when you guys are stocking their IRAs saying, where do I put this money into, you know, what mutual funds, the mutual fund managers that their task is to beat the S&P or beat the Dow or whatever it happens to be that they picked as a benchmark. The problem that I see is that the benchmarks are a terrible, terrible way to actually ascertain risk in an environment where asset prices globally have been so mispriced 
you're benchmarking against a mispriced asset. It's a little bit like if you go back to sort of 06, 07 in the US, and if you looked at the real estate market and said, oh, I, I should buy that house over there because look, it's a half a million dollars and the, the one down the street sold for 600000 So clearly that's a better deal, right? And it is relative to the houses down the street. But if you step back out of that street and you looked at the global context, you go, well, hang on a second. All of these houses that are selling for five, $600,000 are on LVRs that are 110% and they're being, the mortgages are being taken on by people who have no income. Now that difference between the five dollars and $600,000 house doesn't really make any difference. I just look at this as one massive big pool of risk. Why would I benchmark against that? So, um, and obviously then we all saw what happened in, um, in 08 in that it didn't matter if you bought the house for 500 or 600, you still got slaughtered. So I, I, I think to a large extent that's what's happening today is that the benchmarks are being used, but the benchmarks have been manipulated artificially by low interest rates and a number of other things. So you're benchmarking against an asset class that doesn't, you shouldn't just, quite frankly, shouldn't be benchmarking against. But that's what the industry does. So if you and I are managing money and we want to stay in business, we have to beat the benchmark. Okay, so what we'll end up doing is we start following what the others are doing when we take on more risk. That's the only way for us to to stay in business. Okay, so now you have this massive institutional capital flows which are really trend following. They're all going further and further down the risk curve because they want to stay in business. You know, when I look at it from a macro perspective, I just don't want to be involved. Um, I would rather go and take these asymmetric bets on the side where I know I, I, I look at it and I go, you know what? I'm happy to lose 5% a year. I'm happy to. Um, I'm going to lose that much if I put my money in a, um, in a bank all close to it because they're charging us now to deposit money. But I have the potential um, to return 10, 20, 50, 100% um, times my money if this thing or when this thing turns. And for me, that makes a lot more sense. I would rather secure the majority of my assets and then take a portion of them and um, place them on what are, I believe known outcomes. I just don't know what the time frame is. So I try my best to sort of ascertain structural breaks in a market that can indicate when that shift can take place. Um, sometimes it's charts. As I mentioned before, we talked about the Renumbi. We talked about the dollar index breaking. Um, you know, there's, yeah. there's, there's sometimes there's things like that that can help you. In, so at the moment, for example, LIBOR has been spiking. Um, and yeah. and um, interbank lending rates globally have been spiking, which is unusual. It doesn't normally happen across um, uh, banking systems globally. So that's happening now. Is Does it mean that this is the end of the bond market? I don't know. It's just another, it's another piece of the puzzle. Um, and then it needs to be adjusted according to the cost of entry and saying, okay, you know, uh, what's the cost of entry? So, you know, um, coming back to your, Asset allocation, you know, you said mm-hmm. it might be $20 million. Um, 
I'm pretty risk averse. I would put a healthy chunk of that into deep value um, businesses that have got no or low debt that are churning out cash flow um, that are going to be there, whether it's inflation or deflation. Um, and then I would put a decent amount in gold. And, uh, and that would be in a vault. I mean, I'm not talking about GLD. You're talking physical, physical bullion? Yeah. Yep. Um, and so, and then, um, as I mentioned before, I'm quite focused on a number of these structural shifts, demographics, mm-hmm. things like that. And then that tailors into what are the knock-on effects of that and what are the asset, what are the sectors that are likely to, to, to do well and... You know, so things like aged care, healthcare, right? Um, yeah, yeah, retirement yeah. homes, things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just as an outside observer, thinking about you know baby boomers retiring and then needing aged care, when you know you've got effectively their children or the generation below them who aren't as wealthy or who cannot support them, and you look at birth rates and things like that, it would seem pretty weighted towards that's a good <laughs> that's a good idea. Yeah, look, I mean, there's, uh, there's interesting ways this plays through. I just met with a fund um, last week, some guys that I've known for years now. They're, they're investing in sort of sub $20 million companies. They're never going to get publicly listed because they're too small. And mm-hmm. issue, again, coming back to demographics, you've got most of the owners and managers of these businesses are in their 50s and 60s. Yep. So they're looking to retire. And they're looking to hand the mantle over. And guess what? There's a massively decreased supply because of the demographic boom of people that will take up that mantle. It's just supply and demand. So now you've got this, you've got these, and these are businesses with, you know, these guys are focused on businesses with no debt, none at all, strong cash flows. Um, I mean, one business we were looking at, for example, the sellers aren't all that concerned with, the price, they're just looking for someone to take over the business and provide them with a good retirement and they can structure that and we can structure that in, you know, <laughs> in a way that that's going to work for them. Um, but this business has got a $6.5 million EBITDA. It's just free cash flow, um, which when I look at it, I'm like, would I pay $15 million for that? Heck, of course I would. I'd pay more than that. But um, so there's, there's these sorts of opportunities which actually come out of that demographic boom, right? Yeah. And so that's kind of interesting. The other aspect, when you, when you, if you think about risk, liquidity is important, right? Because in a risk of environment, you want to be liquid so that you can buy assets. Yep. Um, and it's the very time when nobody's liquid. But I'm not too worried about liquidity in a private deal provided that deal is throwing off cash flow. So if I'm owning an asset and it's paying me, um, if it's a solid asset and it's you know, paying me 10, 15%, um, why would I want liquidity? I'm not that concerned with the liquidity. Uh, whereas you know, a lot of the stuff that I was doing before, very early stage, no liquidity, um, that's riskier and that's cool. Um, but that it falls into a different bucket of risk because I don't have any cash flows coming out of it. And the only way I'm ever going to make money is when it sells or it lists or it you know, eventually gets to 
position of, of generating revenues and I get a dividend stream in. So, and that's, that's a long, long ways out. So normally you're looking at a, a listing or, or a trade sale. Um, and that's fine. You're looking to get multiples on your money on those deals, but there's a, there's a, it's a different liquidity argument. Um, but coming back to, you know, basic portfolio structure, um, you know, I think you, you divide it into your liquid assets, your illiquid assets in the, in the liquid bucket, you've got cash, you've got CDs, equities, fixed income. And then if you drill down from equities, you've got sort of deep value. Those are kind of where I'd be happy to have, um, a decent chunk of my portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, where they're going to pretty much weather most any storm. Yes, the asset values can fluctuate, but um, I'm not going to get wiped out. And I can probably knock out a you know, a sort of 10% return with no, with, with very, very low risk. Again, you come back to a discussion that we had with the S&P. If, if I'm invested in a deep value businesses, I can't compare that to the S&P because the S&P is not a whole bunch of deep value. There's a lot of rubbish in there. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's, it's a relative issue. And then, the tra- and then in that equities trading side of things, which is like the asymmetric opportunities that I do, um, then depending on your risk tolerance, that's, that's, a, that's an area that I focus a lot on. Um, mm. and, and then if you go sort of all the way back to your illiquid stuff, Again, private equity deals, which if they're generating new cash flow, then I'm not too concerned about the, the illiquidity aspect of them. I don't actually necessarily want to get liquid on them. I'm happy to yeah. own them. Yeah, yeah. And then precious metals. Are, one could say they're illiquid relatively. They're sitting in a safe somewhere. Um, but I'm owning them and holding them as a preservation of capital. Sure. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's not too illiquid. It's not like owning property or something like that. You're talking about being able to liquidate assets what, within a week or something like that. It's pretty, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty liquid. Anyway, um, just on the point of investing in deep value businesses, um, I guess the advantage of doing that in a, in a, in a climate like this or an environment like this is that at the end of the day, deep value businesses are the ones who are going to prosper after any massive market correction or crises. Is that kind of like an added bonus to your, to your way of thinking? What's the biggest bubble in the world today? You tell me. Sovereign debt. Okay, so sovereign debt is clearly the biggest bubble. And then has affected debt in every other market, whether it be emerging market debt, whether it be corporate debt, because it is a factor of interest rates and the, the monetary easing that has been pretty much the standard store for the last, since 08, by central banks has induced this, um, this binge on, on debt. So you've got an environment that is indebted in, if, if you then go for deep value businesses that don't have any debt, mm. it doesn't mean that in a crash they won't go down in value. But what you are doing is you're eliminating the risk that they go away because they don't, they, they, mark, they will go down in value because people sell stock, okay? Yep. Because they need to meet margin requirements, they need to pay the mortgage, they need to 
whatever. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you'll sell that stock in a company that you shouldn't probably sell, but you'll do it because you have to survive. What it means for that particular company is that they didn't actually need that capital, right? It doesn't affect them because they don't have any debt and they've got strong cash flows. So they'll survive. And typically what they do as they come out of that cycle is that they pick up market share because all of the competitors who did have debt yeah, literally just yeah, go yeah. away. So you have a short-term pricing issue for that company whereby they will go on sale. If you have cash, you will just buy more. But if you don't have cash, I think you can sit there and say, you know what, they're not going to go away. Yes, they're going to get cheaper and I'm just going to ride it out. Mm. Um, and they have the ability to do that. So it's really risk minimization. And while you're, while you're doing that, you're getting paid you know, 10% dividends across the portfolio. So, you know, that's, um, or maybe not 10% dividends, but 10% probably in terms of normal capital appreciation and, and dividends. And you might have a period of time where you don't get the 10%. You have a big market correction. Um, but I, the way that I look at it, Lucas, is it's a little bit of the scenario where everybody loses, but he who loses the least wins. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so in that environment, you've got um, a fair amount of safety. And if you don't have your entire portfolio structured like that, you keep some cash available. Um, and then if you have a portion of that, of your portfolio that is in those asymmetric opportunities, you'll more than make up for the loss of the 10%. You might have the, that particular portion of your portfolio may, may go down 10%, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, the other 5 10% or whatever it is that you decide in terms of asset allocation that is in the asymmetric bucket, if you will, mm. will go up 100 times and will produce you probably across your portfolio a nice 10 15% return. Um, so you, you, you retain your sort of that intergenerational wealth. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's how I look at it. Um, and that's how I would structure something along those lines. Here's a more, here's a more personal question for you. What are the books or documentaries that have, that have shaped your life as an investor? What's, what's impacted you that you'd recommend to, for people to go read or study? Well, there's a lot. So one of the first books that I read, interestingly, was actually George Soros's work, which when you read his stuff is really, it's, it's a little bit like brain damage. It's very difficult to read, um, especially when you're coming out of it and not having an education in that space. You know, when I was um, 19, 20, I can't remember, somewhere in that age bracket, I started reading his stuff. That was very formative for me, um, in large part because the way that he looked at the world was he, he, he picks a lot of qualitative aspects as opposed to quantitative. He combines the two, um, and I think it has been why he's been so incredibly successful. Um, so he looks he, you know, he talks about re reflexivity. Um, so for anyone listening, I, I, I strongly recommend his books as difficult as they are to read. And you might have to sort of read them a few times before um, I kind of felt like I was really stupid because I'd read them and go, wow, I don't really get that. And I'd have to reread it. Right. Um, so I reread a lot of stuff, but there's a, there's a lot of gems in there. 
as much as I, I uh, dislike his political tendencies and things like that, um, I don't make the distinction between the man and um, and some of his thoughts. So those are those are um, formative. I've read tons and tons of investment-related books and so on and so forth. But I, I actually think, and I don't really read that much of them anymore. I actually think it's more useful to read history and psychology. If I was to, if I was to go back and do it all again. Those are the those would be the two things that I would spend more time on than anything else. They've been more instructive for me, um, more useful as an investor. Yep, understand history and understand human psychology. Literally, go out and find, you know, what are the what are the books that um, for any psychology degree that's at I don't know, pick your university. Go and have a look and see what the actual. Um, list of books are that are meant to be read and just start there. Um, understand human psychology and then history and combine the two and you'll get a very good understanding of um, of markets because markets are really just a collection of humans um, thinking and how that translates into capital flows and, and history provides us with long-term trends and um, and how markets operate over time. Um, and I think those two are the main things. If you want to, you know, get wealth essentially, then you can understand those two things. Then you're, you're way ahead. Um, I was having a chat with a business partner of mine just the other day, and we we're talking about Warren Buffett. And if you if you look at what Warren did really really well, two things: he came out and he was, you know, he was lucky enough to be in an environment where America was the beacon of capitalism in the world. Um, he had, and he, and he lived in that country, a country of hundreds of millions of people, so massive consumer market, post Bretton Woods, post World War II, it was a consumer market. So you had, he hit the demographic boom, you know, people were buying microwaves and cars and toasters and everything else. And the other thing that he did very, very well was that he wasn't subjected like a hedge fund to limited partners pulling their money out when they got scared, which always happens. Because mm. He financed everything through an insurance company, basically. So he didn't have to wait. When you needed to be buying, he was buying and everybody else was selling, right? Because that's what happens. So I've got a lot of friends around hedge funds and they've all got the same issue. Um, you know, there, one in particular, whose name I won't mention, who's been incredibly successful. I mean, knocked the ball out of the park three times in a row, then set up another fund, which hasn't returned, um, over the time frame. Um, and we just think that the timing's a little bit off, but the actual trade is solid. Um, but his limited partners just all pulled the money out. Investors are fickle. Yeah. So yeah. coming back to Buffett, he didn't have to worry about that. Um, but he he got those long-term growth trends and you had ups and downs and he's just ridden it all away. So I'm of the belief that we're in the sort of, you know, you've got the same environment now and that the demographics are going the other way. So your consumption changes. And if you can hit a number mm. of those sectors, quite literally for the next, 
generation, you can make very good returns by focusing on the correct sectors. So, you know, it's not, it's, it's healthcare, it's aged care, it's technology related to it. Yeah, biotech. Biotech, you know, potentially robotics. Those are the kind of space sectors. Then, you, you, you know, if you educate yourself around those, um, then I think you can do well. So, again, you come back to, you know, we say, what would you read and things like that. Um, I'd read up on, on some of those specific sectors and try and understand them. Yes, yes that's, that's good advice. So here's, here's Chris McIntosh, asymmetric opportunity chaser, uh, international deal maker, successful investor over time, which puts you into category of, of, of someone a lot of people would be interested in hearing about. But successful investors tend to be pretty private people and in many ways the less they're known about, the better for them. So what made you... What made you start Capitalist Exploits and become more of a public figure or, or get your work out there? And yeah. why'd you do it? Excellent, uh-huh. um, really. So I, I met um, an ex-business partner who um, is a, he's that guy, he's a PR guy. He ran a um, PR firm and he suggested that we um, that we set something up like that, um, and I at the time I was like, "That's blogging and things." Just as far as I was concerned, and I hadn't really read any blogs. Um, blogs were for uh, weird kids in the basement, and maybe for people going on holiday, trying to keep in touch with yeah. you know Auntie Auntie Sue back home. Um, it, it was. It was a world that didn't make any sense to me. I couldn't quite understand it. And then a buddy of mine um, who runs a hedge fund out of Florida said to me, oh, no, um, you should do it. Um, and he recently set one up. And I said, why? And he said, well, what you do is you basically, it's, it's, it's amazing how many really smart people that you meet um, that come out of the woodwork who are interested in your ideas and you land up um, you know, learning a lot from them doing business with them and it's just a great way to leverage your networking. Um, now we travel a bunch, um, but there's only so many people that you can meet physically face to face. So it's a leverage tool to actually, um, meet people. And so, um, so that was it. And I thought, Oh, well, there's you know, no harm, no foul. If I try it and I don't like it, I'll just turn it off. Right. There's no risk. Um, and if I like it and it, you know, I meet some interesting people, then great. But I really didn't know anything about it. Um, so we, that, that was how we set up the blog. And actually, when I first set it up, um, I set it up under, under a pen name. At the time, I was living in some countries which, to be quite honest, you wouldn't want to be known to have wealth necessarily. Um, I've got young kids and family, and the last thing I would ever want is uh, kidnapping. Um, it was you know, not saying that it was risky, but it was just you know, oh, it's, if you can. And yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> so I didn't want to be. Um, so I just I gave myself a um, a different surname because you know, giving myself a, a different first name would just be bloody weird. You know, people calling you Dave <laughs> or Fred or something like that. It would just be hot as hell. So anyway, um, so that was 
way back, and then um, and then I I changed it off to some time. I'm not living in a country that I think uh, poses that threat anymore. And um, it's been a, it's been a lot of fun. I've I've met so many very interesting people through uh, running the blog that I would not have met otherwise, and. Um, I've come to actually really enjoy the process of, um, of of blogging. You know what it does for me, Lucas, is I'll sit down and it's like anything. If you're gonna if you're gonna put an idea out there, then you're taking a risk in that it mm. could be a shitty idea, and people go, "Oh, you're a complete moron." But that's yeah, like there forever, is all right. It's exactly, and so it does two things. It makes you sharper because you stop and really think about what it is you, that you're gonna say. Okay. And everything that I'm typically saying comes from how I'm thinking about allocating my capital. At the end of the day, my task is to be able to be as sharp as I can to allocate my own money. I don't really care about being wrong. I just care about being wrong and losing money. And I don't want to lose money. So if I put this out there, put out my thoughts, I'm encouraged when somebody comes to me and says, you know what, I think you're wrong and this is why. And if they can change my mind, then that's super valuable to me. Right. Um, so that's kind of a precursor to it all. And, you know, the blog has grown really just organically. I don't, haven't ever done any advertising. Um, and I've managed to attract a lot of money managers, a lot of um, people far smarter than myself. And the interaction with them has been, uh, has been very useful. We're all through. It's, it's always a constant learning process, um, and you're always constantly discarding things and adding things to your your toolbox, your mental tool, toolbox. And so I'm I'm always looking to try and, and be better, um, smarter, more profitable, and um, that's that's really it. Um, and yeah. On that note, I have a, a question to ask for obvious reasons. What would you be your advice for, for an up-and-coming investment fund these days? It's a tough one. You know, I think, you know, one of the, the, the most difficult things in all of this is, is raising capital. Um, and it's quite a competitive space. The regulations behind running funds are prohibitive. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like we're going to go through a cathartic process um, where something else comes out, and I, I really don't know what that looks like. But here's what I do know. Setting up and running a fund is very costly. I, I run one now, and it's literally philanthropic, um, but it's because it's what I want to do. Now... If I was doing it as a business, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. You need to be in a situation where you really post $50 million and, and we don't have that much. Um, and so you've had this consolidation in the industry. Uh, I know guys who running funds where they've gotten down to $200 million and they've gone, screw it, I can't be bothered. And they just shut the fund down. Um, because the, the numbers are a little bit more, it's just, it's, it's prohibitive to run these things on a cost basis. And it's really just been this, there's been a monopolization in that industry of large, large mutual funds. 
that are shifting capital one way or the other, which actually opens up opportunities on the sort of lower run um, to to get alpha. But the actual running it as a fund is on. I'm not. I'm not convinced that's the best way to do it. Even though I do it, right? I just don't know what necessarily what the alternatives are. So if you look at it from a country basis, I'm going to make an analogy. Yeah. Countries that have done really well, like the United States, it got rich on small to medium SMEs, small to medium businesses, right? Um, and that environment was easy for them to set up. It was easy for somebody to go and set up a business tomorrow, start trading, doing things. Um, that ease of entry um, and ability for somebody to go broke if it didn't work and start again was mm-hmm. the, uh, that was the foundation for a very, very prosperous society. Um, and a healthy market too, right? And a, and a very healthy market. And when you take that away and you make it more and more difficult for those, for that, for, for people to fail and to get in and, and fail cheaply, um, it pushes the capital into the 1%, right? And then you get wealth disparity which is exactly where we're at today. We've got much more of a socialist structure than we've ever had in in developed world. Mm-hmm. Um, the large corporates survive. The little guy suffers. Um, running small SMEs is difficult. <clears throat> um, the plus side of that is that jurisdictions matter far less now. So you can set up a business anywhere in the world, if you please. You could set it up in Singapore. You could set it up in Hong Kong. You could set it up in Caymans. You know, and you can pretty much do business um, utilizing jurisdictional arbitrage, essentially. So that's a positive. But what I'm saying is that when you take the fund industry is kind of like the OECD, right? In that it's <laughs> um, it's become prohibitively expensive, and it's really just the big boys that um, that make money in that space. It's very difficult for the smaller funds to operate. The ones that do operate and do well are just passionate guys um, who are doing it and they're getting they're, they're making money on alpha. They're not making money on fees, and that's where the the majority of capital in the fund management industry gets made. I mean, um, I worked in that industry. It's all about AUM and the market. They'll they'll spend. 60% of their budget on marketing and 40% of their budget on um, analysts and, and research. And that's nuts. But that's just because you get more and more capital under management and you clip the ticket on 2% of that. And, and you know, when you're doing that for a billion dollars, it's all good. Uh, um, but to keep that assets, those assets under management, you need to beat the benchmarks, which again gets people into trend following. It comes all the way back to what we discussed at the start and that is... Yeah. Have got enormous amount of capital going into asset classes. It's just quite frankly, don't make a whole lot of sense. Um, but they make sense when you understand why they're going there, and because the incentive to go in there is is driven by fees and driven by a need to beat those benchmarks, because that is how capital will stay with your fund. Um, it, it really comes down to an ignorant marketplace. Retail investors simply don't understand, and they get pissed off if they don't. If your fund isn't beating the S and P, 
Um, and so then they put the money out and they put it with Joey down the road who's beaten the SEC. <laughs> Not understanding risk profiles or anything like that. So, But look, that's the way the world's always worked, I guess. It is. And it's a fitting point to end our discussion on Chris McIntosh. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Um, I think there are a ton of little valuable nuggets in there. And um, thank you for your generosity and, and letting us into your world. It's been, um, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Lucas, and happy to answer any questions that people might have. That was the final episode in our three-part series with Chris McIntosh from Capitalist Exploits. If you have any questions you want to put to Chris, you can get in touch with us and we'll put them to him. Just hit us up via Twitter at VesperCap and we'll do another session dedicated to answering them. Now, as previously mentioned, listeners can and should subscribe to Capitalist Exploits, which is Chris's podcast and blog, which can be found at capitalistexploits.at or just search for Capitalist Exploits in your favorite search engine. I recommend Chris's podcast, which is an amazing education in the sorts of things we've been discussing today, and his books, which can be downloaded for free from the site. Say hello to him on Twitter also, at CapitalistExp. Finally, anything that we've made reference to in this interview should be available in the show notes. But if it's not, just get in touch with us via at VesperCap on Twitter, or go to Vespa.Capital and get in touch. Thanks very much for listening to our podcast and we look forward to bringing you more actionable habits and strategies you can use to build your wealth over the long term.